The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. We were ambushed, cousin. Spanish steel. Much stronger than our native blades. <clears throat> Any losses? Some. In truth, all of them. And the gold? Taken. Robin Hood? They were woodmen, cousin. Robin Hood. London. It is Thursday, June 24, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Bond. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be and welcome to our first summer show, Robert. Oh, first that's right, it is, The official yeah. summer and the last show of June. It's Five, like summer for the last two months. <laughs> three months, maybe. <laughs> 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in, in any of our conversations today. Boy, have we got a smorgasbord today. I'll be talking a little later on about Robin Hood. Is he the Prince of Thieves or is he just Robin the Hood? <laughs> and boy, the controversy I got into on that, we could have done a whole show on it, but we're only going to give a bit of time to that. A little later in the show, too, it hasn't gone away yet. Uh, we want to talk about uh, some more follow-up on the um, Gaza flotilla issue. And, uh, you know, there seems to be no sides on this, just a lot of angles being played, and I think that we're going to hear a little bit more about that. And we have a potpourri of subjects near the end of the show. So once again, 519-661-3600, the number you can call, or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.com. Dot org. But first, Robert, you're going to take us off in a completely not different direction, but a different area of consideration. And what have you got for us today to start the show off with? Well, I don't know if it's actually a different area of consideration, because a lot of what we're going to be talking about today has an underlying theme. That would be ethics, morality, and mm-hmm. what is ethical behavior, whether it's the Gaza flotilla or Robin Hood. Um, but if you've been watching the news recently, there was a, a smaller item in the paper talking about the Quebec Superior Court, which handed down a decision last week attempting to resolve a dispute between the Quebec government and a Jesuit Catholic school. Loyola, Loyola High School in Montreal challenged a provincially required ethics course on religious grounds. With the decision, it won the right to teach its own brand of ethics to its students. But, of course, the decision is being appealed, so we have to wait for the uh, outcome on that. When I learned of the uh, case, my my first impression was to side with the school. Having had some experience myself with Jesuit schools and Catholic ethics, I realized that the students could do worse. Despite the historical baggage associated with Catholic education and Jesuits, they are renowned for turning out some exceptional uh, freethinkers, including myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, even though I must uh, certainly don't, uh, I, I don't agree with them. The Catholic ethics, um, which places your own happiness after that of others, at the very least. Well, it's, it's okay if you're one of the others. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, at the very least, it's a part of a philosophical system, including uh, defined metaphysics, 
being that the universe exists and was created by a hominid-shaped god. Epistemology, divine revelation and a set of carefully selected gospels interpreted by an infallible pope. Politics, which is socialism. And aesthetics, which I can only describe as grim. <laughs> the Quebec ethics course called Ethics and Religious Culture, on the other hand, stands alone from any cohesive philosophical system. It's a curriculum of floating abstractions in an otherwise philosophic vacuum. From the government's website, I got the following. The Ethics and Religious Culture Program will allow your child to acquire and consolidate, if applicable, an understanding of how all individuals are equal in terms of right and dignity. Now, this is the government's website. This is the government's website. This and is this what is they're essentially saying. what they're saying is their standard of ethics. That's correct. This is the overview of the, mm -hmm. uh, of the whole program. Uh, your child, it will, it will allow your child to learn and reflect on issues, explore, depending on his or her age, different ways in which Quebec's religious heritage is present in his or her immediate or broader environment, Learn about elements of other religious traditions presented in Quebec. Grow and develop in a society in which different values and beliefs coexist. Under ethics, on their website, your child will learn to carefully reflect on aspects of certain social realities and subjects of justice, happiness, laws, and rules. Ask himself or herself questions such as what values should guide people in their relationship in society? Well, those all sound like reasonable questions. <laughs> well, yeah, not, not particularly. Yeah, may, well, they may. They may, on, on the, the face of it. Yeah. Uh, I'll finish. What are the characteristics of acceptable and unacceptable behavior? How can these behaviors be recognized? De delving further into the website, you find out that you can take these particular phrases a couple of different ways, but the underlying theme is that of a person in society, not necessarily ethics themselves. Also, it is a valueless system. It's teaching them... In effect, the curriculum sets moral relativistic values for the students and then requires them to accept the potentially contrary values of others. It places as the context for students' values society, which is more politics and truly ethics, because, of course, ethics can apply on a desert island. You can act you know, unethically on a desert island. You could die if you do not act morally. In other words, to... Uh, well, I'll get into that a yeah, little later. It places the... Um, uh, the context, as I said, in a society, and it sets out to prevent students from passing judgment on beliefs and ethics of others. It discourages students from thinking critically about critically about religions. And not, it doesn't stop them from thinking about them. It teaches about them, but it, it, teaches, it prevents them from thinking critically about religions and cultures and behaviors that are different than their own. The government of Quebec fails to understand with this curriculum that morality must be chosen, not forced. One must choose his own hierarchy of values and then act to preserve those values. This I'd go a step further and say yeah. morality is choice. If you don't have a choice, where is the moral issue? You can't be moral if you're forced to do something, basically. Yeah, you aren't the agent. You aren't yeah. the agent and that's actually action. what I got out of my uh, Catholic uh, upbringing and, and schooling, was that you cannot act morally if you are forced to yes, do the, I was taught what that is, yeah. under a Catholic doctrine as well, and I still mm -hmm. agree with it. Oh, so do I. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, under the Jesuits, they could do worse. <laughs> um, one must choose his own hierarchy of values and then preserve the act to preserve those values. This is acting ethically. One does not have to act socially or in a social context in order to act ethically. 
If the teacher, the bureaucrat, or the politician chooses some egalitarian value for the student, they are not allowing the student to begin the first step in acting, acting ethically, choosing your own values, not having them imposed on you. Ethics is a branch of philosophy that cannot be considered alone. It has to be preceded by both metaphysics and epistemology. The Ethics and Religious Culture Program of Quebec is devoid, at least to my reading of it, of any discussion of either philosophic, of either philosophic study, that is metaphysics and epistemology. And I think this is by design. If they were to precede their discussion on ethics by discussion on epistemology, they would reveal their belief that the universe is unknowable and therefore all viewpoints are valid. An absurd notion which well, flies in the face... that's an interesting conclusion, yes. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's absurd, actually. It flies in the face of everything that we know to be true, of course. And taught in proper philosophic context, the government's curriculum would fall apart and be dismissed by the students as, as soon as they were old enough to voice their own opinions without fear of ridicule or a failing grade in much the same way that many students of religious schools reject the ethical instruction of their teachers once they're allowed to develop and explore their own system of philosophy, which as I did. Mm -hmm. The yeah, fact that yeah. the curriculum begins in grade one and continues to grade 11 belies the government's ulterior motive, I believe, and that is indoctrination. The very idea that a government could impose a set of its values on minds which have yet to grasp how to read is Orwellian. The Superior Court Judge, Gerard Dugray, said that not only did Quebec violate Loyola's religious freedoms by insisting it teach the secular course, but also went about it in a totalitarian manner. She went on to say that the government showed inquisition-like intolerance in the way it imposed the ethics course on the private school, which I found to be pretty funny. The irony is there. For now, is this private school getting public money? No, it is. a. Well, actually, it is. It is getting public well, money. Well, he who pays a piper calls a tune quite quite frequently in situations like that. So to the extent that that's the case... True, um, but that, I think that's a side issue. That's I mean, not their major issue. No, it's not my it, major it, issue. Yeah. <laughs> At but least I'm bringing this up. Is there not a, a, a basic inherent contradiction in moral relativism? If, if I were to believe in moral relativity and that everybody's ideas were equal... Mm -hmm. Well, that's my idea that everybody's ideas are equal. But what about people who don't believe that everybody's ideas are equal, including my own? <laughs> so How do I accommodate that in any way, shape, or form it sounds without some kind of judgment, right? Yeah. You can't do it. And you have to make a judgment on moral relativism itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about critical thinking and, and this, this mistaken, constantly misappropriated um, term, you know, judge not. Lest you be, be judged. judged. right? Well, that, the last part is the important part lest you be judged. So when you judge, be prepared to be, be judged. judged. That's all it says, yeah. right? It doesn't say don't judge. My God, you have to judge. Of course, That's, we do it every day. And, and you must. Otherwise, you can't make a decision between right and wrong mm -hmm. until you've made a judgment. Right and wrong do not exist, yeah. even in a relative term. So uh, the whole thing of moral relativism is, is, is a contradiction to me. Indoctrination, that's an iffy. I think it depends... I think all kids are indoctrinated, aren't they? We as parents... They are, but I think that everybody has to be reminded about what's going on in the school system. I it agree. is It is uh, a system of force uh, where parents are forced to put their kids in the... In the uh, forced at least to pay for a public school system, yeah. whether they put and them... It's in largely monopolized, if not It wholly. is a monopoly, and the, and the, the curriculum is a, um, a standardized curriculum. And the ethics course, and this is an example of an, uh, a standardized ethics curricula that has to be taught in all the schools. Like I say, they are appealing the decision. They want it taught in Catholic schools as well. So, no, it's, it's a, mm. an institution of force, and I believe it's indoctrination.
Um, you know, in the broader sense of ethics, when you're given a choice to choose a moral code, a rational person, in my estimation, will choose his own life as his highest value. Left to integrate his metaphysics, that is, his understanding of reality with his epistemology, epistemology, that is, his knowledge and competency, with his ethics, that is, his behavior, leading him to his survival and his happiness, a person will gain self-esteem. Now, when ethics, when either of these three things are disconnected from the other, you're left with a person who has no self-esteem, who doesn't value himself, and if you don't value yourself, you don't value others. You're left with a person who, if he's not suicidal, glides through life using minimum effort to keep himself alive with no goals or dreams. Such a person we see around us every day, Bob. The person wallowing in self-pity and welfare, the homeless, the jobless, the person who expects others to provide for him, the person expects a Robin Hood perhaps to rob from others to give to him because he's been told by his school system that he deserves it. He's entitled. He's in, it's, it's, it's <laughs> entitled to it. The yes. ultimate entitlement, yes. Yeah. Oh, very interesting, Robert. Well, I guess that's where we're going to take a break now. Are we all done with that now? At least and, for the moment. And, you know, um, I, I don't know why I got into this subject, but I found a few essays in the National Post, and, of course, a movie has recently come out, not the one I picked any clips from, but uh, interesting, all the debates around Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. You would think that it was, you know, I, did, I didn't know Robin Hood was a real person. Do you think he is? It's, isn't that debatable? It, very debatable. That's one of the first things I found. But before we do that, let's listen to this break, and when we come back, we'll talk about whether he is Robin Hood or Robin the Hood. Is this Tagus 3? I doubt there are many oak trees on Tagus. No. I think this is supposed to be Earth. Somewhere around about the 12th century. And this is England, or to be more precise. Sherwood Forest at least cues recreation of it. That will explain these costumes. Quite right, number one. Or should I say, John Little. Well, if he's Little John, that makes you... I know. Robin Hood, sir. I protest. I am not a merry man. Thank you, Wolf. You wish to end this? Yeah. You wish to go home? Yeah. Then we must stop fighting amongst ourselves. And face it, the price for it may be dear. I, for one, would rather die than to spend my life in hiding. The sheriff calls us outlaws. But I say we are free. And one free man defending his home is more powerful than ten hired soldiers. The Crusades taught me that. I will make you no promises save one. That if you truly believe in your hearts that you are free, then I say we can win. They got armor! They got armor, Bull! Even this boy can be taught to find the chinks in every suit of armor! But we ain't got nothing to eat! What do we need that the forest cannot provide? We have food, wood for weapons. We'll find safety and solace in our trees. Yeah, but what about our kin? Shutters taking all they got too. 
And by God, we take it back. Wow, how dramatic there, eh, Robert? Yeah. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call. Read an interesting essay in the National Post, written by all people, by, by uh, John Ridpath, the director of the Ayn Rand Institute and a retired York University economics professor. And he says, the real Robin never robbed the rich. That was the headline. And the first thing I was thinking was, excuse me, the real Robin? <laughs> I wasn't sure that that had been settled. But here's what he wrote. Uh, quote, another Robin Hood movie, another ideological travesty. Interviewed recently on his role in the new epic, Russell Crowe said it was a story of class warfare or of robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. It's an alarming omen to again see Robin Hood heroism mindlessly distorted. Aside from its vacuous, vacuously erroneous simplicity, this standard image of Robin Hood is grounds for concern about the state of our culture. First is the injustice being done to Robin Hood, whether he was an actual person or an artistic portrait. Now there's an out right there, eh, Robert? Mm. He was, in fact, an agent of, of justice. He took the money and property that the Norman conquerors and their minions seized by force from the British yeomanry and returned it to the rightful owners. Robin Hood, in short, was a defender of the common man's right to his earned property. He was a courageous enemy of state-enforced robbery. And in fact, that's the interpretation of Robin Hood we just heard with uh, Kevin Costner and the Prince of Thieves. We're going to take it back. We're going to take back what was ours before. You know, I've always you know? believed in that interpretation of Robin Hood. That well, it's, he was it's the just one. That's why you believe in it, do you see? No, that's, no, no. Uh, it's, I, think it, I even think that in the earlier portrayals of him, whether it's the, the, the cartoons or the Earl Flynn movies or whatever, they always portrayed Robin Hood stealing from not the rich per se, but the rich who didn't deserve it, the clergy, the upper, the, um, uh, the barons yeah. and, the, and the dukes, the people with the weapons, and they were taking it from them. I, I think it's just that little phrase, robbing from the rich to give to the poor, that one phrase screw, screws well, up the whole notion of Robin Hood. Maybe it's what you're watching on TV and in the movies that's screwing up your image of Robin Hood. He's <laughs> <laughs> a fictional character anyway, isn't uh, it? Well, that, that's a debatable. I'll get to that momentarily. But continues Mr. Ridpath further, praising the act of robbery from the rich because it serves the poor without explaining the context, endorses the immoral principle of forcing the able and productive into sacrificial service of the needy. Free and productive people have always been generous when respected and left free to support others as they choose. Turning against, quote, the rich, end quote, as if their successes had been ill-gotten and mandating seizure of what is properly theirs for welfare state re redistribution can only lead to the exodus of the able and the collapse of a civil society into a war over who manages to seize how much from an ever-shrinking storehouse of looted wealth. Of course, that's the theme of Atlas Shrugged, isn't it? Yeah, it Pretty is, well what it? happens in that book. Most alarming, however, is the implication of our culture accepting the Robin Hood mantra, he stole from the rich to give to the poor. To the contrary, historians report, and the, the movie presents by his own words what Robin Hood was after, quote, liberty under law, end quote. He sought the protection of private property under law from robbery by Normans and feudal barony. 
that our culture can unwittingly and with increasing vehemence embrace this unjust and false portrayal of a heroic and virtuous man as evidence of our culture's intellectual decline. When such virtue is portrayed as economic redistribution for the sake of economic redistribution and equalization, we are on the road to George Orwell's 1984 naked tyranny over a citizenry rendered dumb, and, dumb through the abuse of the English language, end quote. Well, I was, I was shocked by that, not just because of his interpretation, which I would like to agree with, but I wasn't too sure that that was the real version of Robin Hood. I looked in a couple of places. Wikipedia said something interesting. Um, it says, in popular culture, Robin Hood is typically seen as a contemporary and supporter of the late 12th century king, Richard the Lionheart, Robin being driven to outlawry during the misrule of Richard's evil brother, John, while Richard was away at the Third Crusade. This view of first gained currency in the 16th century, but has very little scholarly support. It is certainly not supported by the earliest ballads. The early compilation, A Jest of Robin Hood, spelt R-O-B-Y-N-H-O-D-E, names the king as Edward, and while it does show Robin Hood as accepting the king's pardon, he later repudiates it and returns to the Greenwood. Now, that's the introduction from Wikipedia. Then I look in my own, my own uh, world reference encyclopedia, uh, which is hardcover, printed in the 50s, and it, I, I didn't think I'd find Robin Hood in there. I think I figured, well, they don't put fictional stuff in there. And, but sure enough, there it was, Robin Hood. And here's what they had to say. Not much, just a little paragraph or two. A noted English outlaw and the hero of old ballads and stories. His familiar haunts were the forests of Sherwood and Barnesdale, where, according to popular belief, he surrounded himself with a company of daring men. His chief comrades were Little John, Will Scarlet, Will Stutely, Midge, Alan Adale, and Friar Tuck. They lived by killing the king's deer. Though otherwise, they were loyal, plundered only the wealthy, and aided the poor. Ooh, that's, that's the other type of Robin Hood. Mm, yeah. um, it was the boast of Robin and his men that they would never harm a maiden or a woman's escort. So if you had a woman with you, they wouldn't beat you up <laughs> if you're a guy. So maybe, Leave it to you to yeah, think of that. The first thing I was thinking of at the time, yeah. <laughs> at the end of his many adventures, Robin Hood fell ill of a fever. Now, this, is, this is a strange ending. He went for aid to his kinswoman, the treacherous prioress of the nunnery of Kirklees, who allowed him to bleed to death. The first mention of Robin Hood in literature occurs in Piers Plowman, the date of which is about 1377. In it, a country lad reveals that he knows the rhymes of Robin Hood. One of the most successful attempts to make a connected tale from the ballads and countryside traditions is The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood by Howard Pyle. And that's probably what started the whole uh, mythology as most people pro would understand it today. But interestingly, uh, Wikipedia had a little bit of a different history than what my encyclopedia did. So uh, everything I checked was, was a contrary story, and some of them, of course, get into the whole fact of contrary stories. And if you go to Wikipedia to look up Robin Hood, don't press print. <laughs> oh, it's 20-some-odd 20, <laughs> 20 pages long before I realized that I had this whole history of Robin Hood. And it, it changes. There's, all, there's various interpretations. But interestingly, the term Robin and Robin Hood showed up in legal documents, and, and people who were of criminal intent were often called Robin Hoods of various sorts. But perhaps the silliest thing that I saw in the paper recently was uh, a National Post article 
May 21st. I don't even think this had to do anything with Junk Science Week, which they're doing. But it says, new research suggests that humans may be hardwired to steal from the rich and give to the poor. And that, you know, we all have this uh, Robin Hood impulse. As moviegoers line up to see Ridley Scott's film adaptation with Russell Russell Crowe and Kate Blanchett, the climate for Robin Hood's moral brand seems bleak. Socialism has become a dirty word in America, they say. But while Robin Hood's ideals are politically controversial, researchers in psychology and related fields are finding that humans are inclined to engage in Robin Hood-like thinking, which they often call, quote, egalitarian motives, inequity aversion, or variance reduction, etc., etc. So basically, what these scientists set out to prove was uh, to, quote, debunk the idea that we always act rationally. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. So you regard Robin Hood behavior as irrational, and you're proving it by the fact that we have this behavior. But so what they did was, well, and, and more proof of this, by the way, is that, you know, that, that we are Robin Hoods. They talk about internet piracy, for instance. People who steal software from their, from their firms and handed it to pirates to post for free on the internet view themselves as Robin Hood figures stealing from the rich, the company, to give to the poor themselves and other consumers like them. I don't see that as a Robin Hood scenario at all. And it's the other stretch. It is. And then they talk about all these studies that they've done repeatedly in the universities, you know, California, San Diego, James Fowler's study in 2007, where they give college students in these, exper- in these experiments, now get this, they give them randomly generated amounts of money, and then they find out how they might spend it. Now, once you've already given someone money that they didn't have to earn, to which mm-hmm. they have no connection, there's nothing about that experiment that can be considered real anymore. Yep. And they found people were rather generous. They didn't like it if somebody else was more unequal. Well, I'll tell you, if you start any game, every game of Monopoly starts off egalitarian-wise. Once you've rolled the dice once, nobody's the same anymore. And why is that? Because everybody makes different choices. And if you gave everybody a million dollars today, 20 minutes from now... Some people would be paupers, some people would be billionaires. Just like that, you couldn't stop it. You can't keep everyone equal unless you freeze all action, freeze all activity, freeze all choices. And, of course, uh, trying to constantly um, appeal to altruistic tendencies by proving that they're what we're really all about in science. I mean, that just, that just gets beyond the pale. The reason people like to steal is because they were getting away with it and the laws allowed them to get away with it and socialism allows you to get away with it. It's called uh, trying to get something for nothing or without effort. That's basically all I see there. There's no big science. You know, it's like, remember the God spot? Yes. Right? Well, this is the altruist spot. They think we've got an altruist spot, which, of course, is not really the case. That's all I got to say on that, Robert. We're going to break now at the bottom of the show, and then when we come back, we're going to be talking about an issue we've talked about before on this show, and that is the Gaza flotilla and what happened with regards to that. Last week on Tuesday, I had uh, the occasion to be on, uh, again, Christine Williams' show over at the CTS Television Network, and we were going to talk about three subjects that day, the Gaza flotilla, uh, human rights commissions, and something else to do in Parliament. Well, we didn't really get past the first subject, because as soon as that subject started, it pretty well lasted most of the hour. We'll be hearing a couple of clips from that um, from that debate, I guess. I was on with Christine Williams, who hosted the show, and Shahid Akhtar, who apparently is uh, represents a group of conciliation, of conciliation between uh, you know the Jewish side and 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 um, the Muslim side. So uh, here is the first clip from that, and when we come back on the other side, it will continue, and we shall continue the discussion. 
Once again, this is going to be in the news for some time to come. We covered it yesterday. The flotilla incident in Gaza was quite the heated production indeed. Today, there's another element added to this. Our Prime Minister has been given a letter by three activists that were aboard that flotilla leading to the nine deaths of the Turkish activists. And the letter is a very unfriendly one, obviously, stating that Canada, it, well, there's a disappointment in the letter that Canada has virtually um, not condemned the act of what happened aboard that flotilla. So this is what we're talking about today. And Robert, I want to start with you first on that one. Your reaction, first of all, before we get into that entire incident and recap some thoughts to the letter that was sent to Prime Minister Harper, who, of course, according to this article, expressed his condolences when it came to the deaths, but did not condemn, according to what these three guys are saying, the act. Well, the people identified are identified as activists, which I see yes. as basically professional protesters. And, you know, what would they have Mr. Harper say and to what end? Even if this is a worst case scenario and was a complete error on Israel's part, does it really change the big picture in any, in any major way? You know, I'm, I'm looking at an outsider. I, I'm looking as an outsider into the whole mm -hmm. um, Gaza situation, the Arab-Israeli conflict. And what I see is a perpetual hatred of the, of the Jewish state by all of the Arab nations around and I don't think that's going to change regardless of all the minutia we talk about or anything of that nature. Um, you're dealing with a, with a bunch of states around Israel that by any definition would be called tyrannical because they don't allow for individual rights, individual expression, freedom of religion, freedom of work and all those things, all which are allowed in the state of Israel. So on what level do I morally judge one side or the other? I do it on those absolute values in the country that, that respects its citizens, allows them to choose their religion, condemns violence at every at every opportunity, that's the country that I would most likely side with. And in so doing, if you're dealing with a, with a, you know, it's nice to say you can bring people together to talk, but if one side insists on being irrational and is driven by a motivation that has got nothing to do with the issue at hand, there's no resolution involved in that. There's no way to do it. Okay. Now, Shahid, your view on this? I'm really surprised, Robert, to hear you say that uh, absolute values is something you believe in and yet to finger point one side which is wrong and the one side which is right the fact is no matter what the nature of dispute is no one side is 100 percent right and no one side is 100 percent wrong in order to have faith in absolute values and i totally agree with you that that's how it should be I have no right to say that no matter what A does, I will support A regardless of the nature of their actions, or I will not support B because whatever they do. The fairness, the justice, the even decency of humanity requires that whenever there is a dispute, you should look at who did what. Well, the question wasn't about and, the dispute. The question was about the letter to Mr. Harper. Regardless of the letter, mm -hmm. the thing is, if the letter asks for something which fairly treats the opposing sides, no, I don't mean to say that you have to necessarily condemn one or both or the others. At least show with your action, with your language, with your lexicon, that you stand for justice, that you stand for truth, that you will do everything 
that will seek out what actually happened. To believe in one side blindly does nothing but reduce the credibility of Canada in the eyes of international community because Canada was the one country which always stood ways above, heads and shoulders above everybody else because it had become the conscience not only of the United States but of the entire world. My only objection is this, that when you are talking about a conflict, you cannot say that regardless of the actions of one particular side, we will, uh, we will stay uh, with them and we will not consider the other side. Okay, now I promised Robert to reply to this. Robert, go ahead. First of all, I never said regardless of the actions of the other side. You look at each individual action in a court of justice, and I'm not in a position to argue on that. But one of the things that I have found is that whenever we find countries under criticism, the countries you will see criticized are Israel, the United States, now Canada, Britain. What makes those countries different from all the other countries in the world is that they are the higher moral countries. Can I just quickly... And, and I just want to say something. The reason that you can criticize Canada and the States and that they put up with it is because they have a moral standard against which they can be criticized. You don't go to the Soviet Union and say, oh, you killed 500,000 people this year, because that's what they do all the time. Whereas a country that is based on peace and is based on a set of values that it says are these, and then is found with the slightest little, little thing goes wrong, it gets criticized and justly so. But when other countries that don't have that standard, that don't even aspire to that standard, commit atrocity after atrocity after atrocity, that, that, that don't even match Western civilization's concept of, of uh, I mean, just criminal activity. I, I just, there I, is no I, occupation of any nation by any other nation that justifies the kind of actions we see going on in the Mideast. Goes on nowhere else in the world. Goes on there constantly. Suicide bombings. Who would have ever, the average North American never mm -hmm. even knew of such a thing until 2001. And so, to even be in that state of mind, what has happened to a culture to make it collapse to such a point? that it can behave. And, 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 and to say that the majority of people aren't in support of that, I don't think can be said. I you don't, don't hear I honestly that. Don't know you don't yes. hear. Which, which uh, uh, media you watch and uh, where do you hear about the criticism only being one-sided? For the past so many years, you see how much Iran has been criticized, how much China has been criticized during their Olympics uh, days. The the Not for these kinds of things. The criticism, the criticism mm -hmm. is all over the map. Okay, we're going to have to stop you guys for a minute here because I'm forced to go for a break now. Once and that was last week, Tuesday, on the CTS program. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW, where I am now joined uh, for his first official report from Europe by our Euro correspondent, Paul Lambert. Paul, are you there? Hello, hello, Bob and Robert. Good Hi, to talk Paul. to you both again. Boy, yeah. boy, was I glad I got um, you know all that education from you when you were on the show <laughs> a few weeks ago before I appeared on that one last week. I'll talk about timing then. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Paul, you wanted to talk about 
what what you've seen from your perspective now that yes. you're back in Sweden and seeing a European perspective. I'll tell you the things I see. I've got two articles in front of me, one from the London Free Press and one from the National Post, that say almost literally opposite things about what happened on that boat at the time. Uh, we have Gwen Dyer, who I quoted already on that show, uh, talking about how the paratroopers from Israel, quote, knowingly put forward false accounts in order to justify their firings. While on the other hand, we have Lauren Gunter in the, in the National Post reporting that the real passengers were 40 operatives from the Turkish Islamist organization, the IHH. And uh, so what do people over here, what do we believe? Which of these two stories can we believe? Well, we have, uh, well, unfortunately in Europe we only have one sto- side of the story in the, in the mainstream press, the one, uh, the one really siding with the, the flotilla. I mean, of course, the, the beginning of the month, that was all the big story in Europe, uh, if the press here is believed. Uh, yeah, it was the ship to Gaza and the, the Israeli Defense Force stopping and boarding one of the ships and clashing with these ostensible peace activists on board. And it did result in the deaths of nine people. Now, um, what you're told here, anyway, in Europe, in the press, is that uh, these ships were loaded with some unspecified humanitarian supplies uh, bound for Gaza to help relieve what's claimed to be a humanitarian crisis in the Strip. Um, On the way, now, five of the ships, there were six altogether, five of these ships had to stop or turn back for various reasons, uh, including mechanical trouble. Um, The one ship that did reach the waters surrounding Gaza was called the, the Mavi Marmara, uh, according to the press reports, uh, as the Mavi Marmara approached Gaza, it was suddenly boarded. Uh, the commandos assaulted the peace activists on board and uh, killed nine people before forcing the ship to dock at Ashdod. Now, naturally, the European pundits are wild, all these livid accusations of human rights violations and war crimes. Uh, in particular, the Swedish evening newspaper, Aftonbladet, divided entire sections of its paper for days on end, calling for a total boycott of Israel, and even featured a full spread in how Swedish consumers can identify Israeli products by means of their UPC codes at the store, so shoppers could refuse to buy them. Um, even more shocking, the Swedish Harbour Workers Union uh, went so far as to initiate uh, a unilateral blockade of its own against Israel by refusing to forward any shipments of any kind between Sweden and Israel. Uh, they're demanding an impartial international inquiry into the incident. And so far, there's several dozen containers that are, have been stopped at Gothenburg Harbor. And this union is going to keep up its blockade until the 29th of June. Now, have they ever done something similar with respect to the other nations around uh, Israel that also have blockades? No, absolutely not. So you guys no. have your own Sid Ryan and, uh, and your union <laughs> unions oh, I will. Yeah, Absolutely. Remember Europe, uh, you know... They're you know, aware of Sid We have Ryan. our own Sid Ryan. It's, it's a question of who came first. I mean, in America, you still have yet to have a Holocaust or gulags or anything like that. I don't know who really inspired whom. You know what but I find then, interesting, Paul, was mm-hmm. uh, the irony here, because if you heard that clip, uh, did you hear the clips uh, just before you got on there? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, if you hear that clip there, the, uh, the person who was sitting opposite Bob was talking about how you have to listen to both sides of an equation and both sides of the story before taking action, and yet it looks as if Sweden and the government and the newspapers and the press and the, and the people there have already made up their minds and are willing to just go in there and boycott Israel without considering both sides. Isn't that sort of ironic? Well, I, I've, I've stopped being disappointed about that for one reason. Now, I'll tell you why. That uh, newspapers and that, in my opinion, they're not 
they're not information, they're entertainment and they're advocacy, and they have every right to push forward their agenda. So instead of myself pushing for a more equal media, I, I try and push just for an awareness among the population that it is advocacy, it is entertainment, it is one point of view, and you have to be a more responsible reader and pick out the information that you think is true and is not true and make a, a decision for yourself, and far too few people do that, of course. Uh, again, you know, implied somewhere in there, Paul, is you're saying there aren't any honest newspaper reporters out there anywhere. <laughs> I, I, would you say, would you go that far? Well, I, I wouldn't. I mean, only because, you know, it, it might be a bit biased. I've a long time had uh, problems. I mean, I'll tell you, any, any incident or any newspaper article that, about a story that I've personally been involved in or have known the intimate details have been totally wrong, even very innocuous, non-controversial things. And so it makes me wonder how much can I trust these other stories about what I don't really know about. I mean, I'm just going by what the newspaper says, and I already know from my own experience that uh, the information is already so faulty that, like I said, I, I try not to get too upset about it, but just keep in mind that the newspaper is going to put forth one point of view, and it's I, as a reader, who has to make that final determination. So how do you then, in the midst of all of this, you, you say you're inundated with one side one point of view where you are how then does someone in your position arrive you obviously didn't share the conclusion of the side that you're being inundated with how did you manage to get around that you must have found information other ways well yes thankfully we have we have the internet i mean of course you start off with this a certain ring of truth i mean i, I know about history and about certain basic information so there's a certain ring of truth that either, either registers or does not with any particular story um these days we also have the internet and there are other news sources and what you do often is there's a bit of a sieve of truth you find all the newspaper articles you can find like take anything from like the guardian in england and then what you do is you go to the uranian news sources and you sort of cross off everything that matches you understand what i'm saying anything mm. that's both in the uranian newspaper and the british one you eliminate that and what's left of the british article you can have some faith in <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's a bit of a tedious task but, uh, I, I go through similar procedures quite frequently. Mm. Process of elimination, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, consistency. You really have to almost be a detective. Oh, it is. That's right. And, and I mean, there's a difference between just the, the consumer who's just really going to read it and have an opinion and then people who are actually actively involved. And, uh, of course, no newspaper article is really going to change the mind of anyone who's actually involved in it, who, who has a stake in it. But, uh, of course, you know, there's a certain sense of justice. You want the right information coming out. So far, the, the newspapers have not been doing that at all. So, um, one, oh, go ahead. No, I just want to mention that, uh, that the reaction elsewhere in Europe, I gave you the, the Swedish reaction, but mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting. For instance, um, well, there many public and private organizations decided to lash out at the Jews in their own way in response to this uh, incident. In Spain, for instance, there was a delegation of gay residents from Tel Aviv who were banned from the Madrid Gay Pride March um, the organizer, Antonia Poveda, explained to the British newspaper The Guardian, and I quote, after what happened, as human rights campaigners, we would find it barbaric to have them take part. And of course, that's just because they were Jewish. They had nothing to do with the army or anything. They were, there were other gay activists who had many other things in common, but because they were Jewish, they themselves were excluded from a, you know, a, pride, a pride march, supposedly supporting the the rights of other people who have been excluded from their own society in many ways. So, um, <laughs> it's, it's a, you know, that's what happened. And, you know, it, it's, 
and, and, it, and it continues, you know, uh, as well um, uh, in The Guardian as well. And for those who don't know, The Guardian is a British newspaper, a very left-leaning British newspaper. Um, as far as the writing style goes, it is quite good. But um, it, is, it has a very distinct leftist slant to it. And the columnist there, Buen Keynes, is his name. He wrote in his op-ed piece that among the volunteers aboard the Mari Marmara ship, he said they were... Uh, all civilians from 33 countries. There were volunteers from 15 members of the European Parliament. There was the 1976 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Mary Corrigan Maguire of Ireland, and an 85-year-old Holocaust survivor named Hedy Epstein. Um, just as there were other Turks on the ships, they were alongside Muslims, Christians, Jews, and atheists, and he stated quite emphatically, um, this enterprise, and I quote, this enterprise was a civilian and international humanitarian aid effort in the fullest sense. So that was really the sense of the European press gave its readers about the, this incident, that the Israelis just engaged in some brutal, unprovoked attack against a humanitarian convoy and murdered nine peace activists in cold blood. Now, if you like, I could fill in what the press conveniently left out, um, some information here. Certainly. Oh, yes. Uh, well, once again, the accusations leveled at the Jews always begin on Chapter 2. Um, firstly, I should point out there, there's no particular humanitarian crisis going on in Gaza right now, um, not beyond the squalor you'd expect to find when such a large population is crammed into an area too small to support it. But the stores are filled with food and drink. There are plenty of consumer goods available. Um, the recreational facilities are open. There's medical and hygiene products all available. And this is because tons of supplies that come in by lorry from Israel. You know, you well, have to Robert, Robert Vaughn covered a lot of that just a couple of weeks ago. You did a, a roundup on that, Robert. Well, you talked least, about all the other places mm -hmm. where Israel was making sure that the aid was getting in. Well, yeah, so well, you have to keep in mind as well that the flotilla itself would have been allowed to deliver its humanitarian goods if they had docked to Ashdod, and then Israel would have forwarded such things to Gaza by lorry. As a matter of fact, Paul, Israel is taking sometimes the, uh, when, when you can't get things through Egypt, apparently they say, go to Israel, they'll let it through. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It, it's, you know, if we're talking about a humanitarian effort, uh, we're trying to be sincere, then Israel is by far the most humanitarian donors to the, to the Arabs in Gaza at all. Well, that's indisputable. What, oh, do you yeah. think, what do you think about this statement by David Frum, who wrote in the National Post on June 12th, that the goal of the Israeli embargo is not to starve the Gazans, who are not starving. The goal of the embargo is to weaken Hamas political control over Gazans' livelihood. That makes a lot more sense to me. Well, I, I still think that's too much of an interpretation. No, is it? No, well, I think, you remember for eight years now that the rockets have been fired at you know, Jewish settlements in Gaza and in, in Jewish cities, uh, Sirot and Ashkelon. And this was a bombardment involving thousands and thousands of rockets. Day well, that in, has day a lot out. to do with Hamas, doesn't it? Oh, well, it does have a lot to do with Hamas, but what this, in the, the, the blockade is, has successfully done is to keep weapons and other such supplies from reaching into Gaza, and as a result, these rockets have stopped. It has been a perfectly effective way of ending the violence that has been levied against the Jews. It's been a perfectly successful operation. It had nothing to do with punishment, it had nothing to do with uh, even, I think, controlling the economy of the Gaza Strip. It has it served its very 
its very purpose. So then I guess to, uh, we can assume that the flotilla's real purpose, ulterior motive in challenging the maritime blockade, was to find another avenue, not for humanitarian aid, but for weapons? Well, you, you put it just perfectly, because the actual true uh, intentions that came out of the mouth, the, the woman who organized the flotilla in the first place, she's a woman named Greta Berlin, of what's called the Free Gaza Movement, and she said as much that the purpose of flotilla was to break the blockade of Gaza had nothing to do with humanitarian efforts at all. It was designed to provoke an incident with the IDF so people could record it on their telephones and put it up on YouTube. And in that, in that degree, they did succeed. Interesting. Mm. Well, that kind of tells the whole story, doesn't it? Well, almost, because the, the press typically mentions the Israeli boarding and then fast-forwards to the, the killing of the nine people on board. And what they don't mention is actually what happened in between. Now, you, you mentioned uh, Bob, the Turkish IHH, which really was the, the protagonist of this story. It's, it's not a humanitarian organization. They are a long-time Islamic fundamentalist organization with ties to al-Qaeda. And as the Israelis approached the Mavi Mamra, um, the, Mavi Mamra uh, the ship was ordered to Dhaka Ashdod, and just loud replies were heard from the ship telling the Israelis to go back to Auschwitz. And so that's... Uh, that was, that was a nice one. welcome, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Jeez. Now, it, there was one thing. In, in, in Israeli intelligence did fail somewhat that day because the men who boarded the ship were, were armed just with paintball guns and uh, small sidearms, and they expected it would be more like a crowd control operation. However, the instant the first Israeli soldier boarded the ship, he was instantly beaten by the crowd with iron bars, stabbed in the chest, and thrown from the top deck down to a lower deck 12 feet below. Another soldier, his name was Daniel Lazar, he had one ear cut off with a knife and was shot in the leg. And the violence was so overwhelming that one soldier actually had to jump overboard to save his life, while other soldiers then took out the sidearms and fired into the horde, killing nine of the activists on board. If that's, but, even, if that's even a little bit true, people like Wynne Dyer are complete lying, completely lying to us. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, just uh, totally, totally lying to it, it. It sounds to me, Paul, as if the newspapers, the news reporters, and the populace who are believing the tripe coming out of people like Gwyn Dyer and, and The Guardian are complicit, are oh, complicit are. In, in the violence that's continuing in the Mideast by not pointing out who the aggressors are, what their motivation is, and trying to stop it. Oh, they, they are. They are, they are part of it. Remember, the whole idea of a Palestinian nation. That is largely a creation of the media. Oh, you know, this is a great place to take a break. We're going to come back right after this, but do you recall how, um, well, you got to listen to this opening uh, comment. This is a conclusion of the, um, of the show I was on last week, but uh, listen to the error I make right off the bat, and I get corrected by the show's host, Christine. <laughs> uh, you know, you think I should have learned this after having been on the show with you a couple of weeks okay. ago, Paul, but we'll be back right after this break. Why not support Palestine being taken over by the Jewish state, and then the people in Palestine... Gaza, there's no... Pa or, I'm sorry, or, or, I'm sorry. Gaza, sorry. There's no Palestine, there okay? No there's thing. no Palestine. No such thing as Palestine. Just to let you guys know, it's Gaza, Correct. the Palestinian people. Okay. And, 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 and let them live under Israeli law, where they will have all the rights to which you say they're entitled to. You know, if, if, it, if there have been talk about one state uh, solution of this, but the two state solution is something on which pretty well everybody internationally, including Israel, Palestine, everybody has agreed. A disastrous so, decision, so, by the so, way. I think you know, that's uh, a disastrous uh, decision. You know, that, 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 is, that is too too far into the political uh, negotiations 
arena. The main thing is, it's a human principle, Robert, and that is that no one should be put in a position where it becomes an existential question for them, where Israel has to Precisely. ask, whether, are we going to live, are we going to survive? But that's what they where, face on where, a daily basis. We're talking about the same subject. Where, where Palestinians <laughs> have to worry about their life, their, uh, their existence to a point where they feel that so much is being taken away from them in terms of human dignity. I find it most nauseating that the people of Gaza are being used as human shields by Hamas. Mm -hmm. That that is unbelievable. The reports about them being used as human shields and using any front they can in order to get to Israel. I, I just want you to comment about that. I mean, that is a, 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 an issue that continues Again, to get in the way and has caused these so-called blockades see, the against is, Hamas from Egypt and Israel. No one will ever say that using in, uh, civilians as human shield is a good thing. It's not. It's something that you it's should, heinous. you should, you should, it, it is, it's absolutely disgusting. But that is not the only disgusting thing that is happening. religion is good except the Amish they're a bunch of idiots <laughs> their holy land is in Pennsylvania to six <laughs> do you see the flaw right there pretty sure Jesus didn't resurrect seven miles south of Philly <laughs> we should take their land They'd never see it coming, you know? Just start building settlements in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They'd have to form the ALO, Amish Liberation Organization. Start attacking us. Two men were shot dead today. Work of the musket sniper. Put anthrax in our butter. <laughs> Welcome back. Still there, Paul? <laughs> oh, I'm still there. Hey, we had, you, we had you look into another quick story for us, which almost seems to be on the other side of the spectrum. And it's about the Dutch vote swinging far to the right, according to the uh, National Post, which uh, the anti-Muslim Freedom Party ends in close third place with Geert Wilders and his anti-Muslim Freedom Party, which, by the way, I was obviously interested in because I'm involved with the Freedom Party here, but it has nothing to do with this Freedom Party. What can you tell us about this situation? We've only got a couple minutes before the end of the show. Well, yes, the uh, Dutch Freedom Party, they took 23 of 150 parliamentary seats by proportional representation. Um, yes, uh, the Dutch Freedom Party, it's, it's led by a gentleman named Gert Wilders. Um, he's, now, I, I have to point out he's an outspoken opponent of Islam as a body of thought. However, he is clear to make a distinction between those practicing the Muslim faith and Islam itself as a system of belief. Now, the European press has focused very much on the, his anti-Islam stance and, and made that really the sole issue behind him. Um, you know, the very left-wing German magazine, Der Spiegel, calls him an agitator with no substance to offer, and, and that's basically the, the tone of it. And, uh, you know, another one, like the Süddeutsche Zeitung right here, it said that uh, 
uh, if my German's any good, the people's fear and insecurity pushed a lot of more voters than inspected into the arms of the right-wing demagogues. Um, what I really think the press here is missing is that the Freedom Party in Holland, it, it is, a, it is a, an established party with a full program, a full platform. I mean, they're, they're fiscally conservative. Um, they're, they're socially liberal in the sense that uh, we've come to know Holland to be. I mean, the, the party does have a stand on like, equal legality for women and uh, the interests of homosexuals, for instance. So it's really, it's part of the mainstream political debate. And, it, and it's one that has more and more appeal to people in Europe. And so that's why I think there is a real split between the mainstream media in Europe and the actual values held by the people here. Now, of course, Mr. Mr. Wilders has found himself, he's being charged, isn't he, under, what, Europe's version of human rights commissions or something? Well, he's, he's been charged for hate laws, uh, uh, yeah, for, uh, for hate speech. Now, what happened is that in 2008, he produced a small 17-minute uh, film um, called Fitna, and it can be found anywhere on, on the Internet now. It's, it's, pretty, it's gone viral, as it was, and it, it shows that, uh, First, it shows different surahs from the Quran interspersed with the scenes of violence that have been committed by Muslims. And he's tried to make the association that Islam itself, as a belief system, has motivated people to commit these sort of crimes. And, uh, yes, so he is uh, he's being charged for hate crimes for this film. Now, what's really interesting is that uh, he had, a, uh, at the beginning of his trial, he had a list of 18 witnesses he wanted to call, including legal experts and experts uh, in Islam, including many radical Muslim clerics, 15 of those 18 witnesses were disqualified right away by the court. Um, the, the Dutch court absolutely refused to allow any radical Muslims to testify. And uh, so that, I found that rather egregious in itself. Now, his, uh, the trial will continue again in October this year, so I'll definitely keep an eye on that story as it develops. Well, it's certainly an interesting one to follow. And, um, you know, when you describe the party as, as fiscally conservative and socially liberal, I'm afraid I might have to describe our Freedom Party that way to some people as well. Wouldn't you oh, almost say that? That's how a lot of people would, would maybe see it. Well, thank yeah, you, Paul. Yeah, it was great to oh, talk to you guys. Yeah, um, hope you enjoyed that as your first official report from Sweden as our Euro correspondent. And, of course, we'll have you back on future shows as well. Wonderful. Take care. Take care. And that's it for us, too. We've got to get out of here today. So we hope that you'll join us again next week. And you know what to do until then. Be right, act right, do right, stay right, and be right here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I went out last night and I got back at uh, the hotel at 7.30 this morning and I went up to the desk to leave a wake-up call for 7 o'clock. <laughs> and the lady goes, Mr. White, it's past 7. <laughs> no, the next one. <laughs> you got another one coming around, don't you? Why don't you just put me on that one, eh? Here they're running two a day through New York City. <laughs> and it turns out I was right. Sure enough, two a day, like clockwork. <laughs>